This is the Big Daddy Liberty Show. Welcome back to the Big Daddy Liberty Show, the podcast, of course, which is syndicated here on Chai FM, but also available ever increasingly on more radio stations across the country. And... Um, will be available to you in the actual downloadable podcast version on all your favorite podcasting sites. So you watch out for that uh, just around 1 p.m. or so today. So I'm in conversation. As always, I throw it to my panel here on the show, who I like to call the five ever increasingly, as there will be uh, every week five of us on the uh, on the show to give insight and analysis on the issue. Today we're joined, of course, by Joe Emilio, who, of course, is a comedian and the host of The Joe Show. He is a podcaster also that who I'd like you guys to have a look at. Uh, Joe, good morning. Good morning, Zikwe. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Hello, listeners. Excellent. We're also joined on the line by Clive Mashishi, who's uh, from the Zionist movement. He might be a voice that a lot of you are quite aware of already. He has been on the show before, so you can check out the Big Day Liberty show and look for uh, the episode we did on Zionism. What is it, and um, what does it mean to be a Zionist? I also have uh, Mpiake Ikamini, who is from the Free Market Foundation. Mpiake, good morning to you too. Hello, Sister, and I told you to all your listeners. All right, guys, welcome to the show. Uh, as I can still see, Clive is on mute. Ah, he's unmuted himself. Clive, good morning. Good morning, good morning. How are you? Good, Clive. Um, your line is deteriorated a little bit again, um, but we'll see how it goes as we go forward. Guys, um, let me maybe get straight into it. You know, Joe, I'll begin with you because, again, I think the topical thing this week has been the announcement by President Cyril Ramaphosa. You know, he appears on our screens once again and basically announces that, hey, he's moving the country to, quote-unquote, level one lockdown and uh, begins to... And sort of partially detail what that means. Uh, you know, things, for example, like, uh, you know, the uh, reintroduction of more sectors of business into the economy, uh, the possibly possible reopening subject to various conditions that are dictated by them of international travel. And ironically, though, there's still remaining a lot of things that we find to be rather anti-liberty and are, excuse me, quite a bit of a problem. So, for example, the curfew wasn't removed, but instead its times were shifted to now be from 12 to 4. Your first take on just generally level 1 and its implications? Uh, well, um, yeah, level 1 to me, uh, as I kind of predicted on my show, um Everybody was excited, and I knew level one is just, I don't know, it's level 2.2 or level 2.3, um, level 2.5678. Um, it's, it's, it's just fluff in my opinion. There's still a lot of confusion with some of the areas and industries. For example, when it comes to large gatherings, I don't understand that part. I'm still waiting to get a hold of the actual uh, documentation. Um, but, uh, yeah, like it says, um, you know, venues can be 50% capacity, but to me, that sounds like a bit of an issue because if you have a venue that's 80 and social distancing under level two, you could maybe have 60 or 70. Um, now if you're at 50% capacity in level one, that means that you're 40, which means you have less customers in your, in your venue, which is, um, I think it's a good thing that uh, we're we're at least somewhat uh, getting an ease of the regulations. But I think the biggest thing here um, is the curfew. 
the curfew makes absolutely no sense. Um, you know, 12 uh, midnight to 4 o'clock in the morning, people are sleeping usually at that time. Um, I've worked in a bar uh, in my pre in, in previous years. Uh, those are and my bar used to stay open until about four o'clock in the morning. Trust me, it's quite dead. There's not a lot of people out there, so I don't understand the curfew. It's it's like uh, the president's trying to say, I don't know, we still want control and we want you to stay at home as much as possible if you have no reason to go out. Biaki, there's the key word, isn't it? It's the idea of control. Uh, your first take on this move to level one, is it really even significant? Well, there's significance in that you are getting more and more reforms, like more and more uh, moderation of the original lockdown. So there is significance in that, that more, more sectors are being opened up and all of these things. But, you know, you have to understand that uh, if you're a politician now, they know that uh, how unpopular lockdowns are. Mm-hmm. But they also have to consider that uh, if, if they pull out too quickly, then they, they lose all credibility. It looks like there was the whole thing was pointless in the first place. So they, they, they put them in the, in, in, in the worst possible position. And uh, someone, I think, uh, was uh, that, um, uh, and then it's, in, it's across the world. It's not just here in South Africa. So the politicians are putting them in, themselves in a position which they can't easily retreat from. So they have to justify like the lockdowns we've already had. Like they, the, the, the people can't feel as if those were a waste because they, they've done so much harm. So they, they, people have to feel like it was worth it. And if they don't feel that, then uh, one of the things that will not that will make them not feel that is if the politicians withdraw too quickly from the lockdown. If it's too fast, then it looks like okay, they are retreating because they see that it's unpopular and it's not. So it wasn't about health. Mm-hmm. And again, maybe even as I say that, let me let me unpack some of these provisions because for me, I've always asked the question. Or let me not say ask the question. I've always put forward that the the arbitrary nature of a government uh, thinking it can control things in society like this is a dubious proposition. You know, we, I've always argued, for example, that period, governments cannot control societies and these lockdowns, for as much as on paper they are seen as, you know, this is what you may or may not do, the vast majority of people... I would argue, are simply not heeding a lot of these lockdown rules. I mean, there's a joke online to say, you know, uh, Cyril will, will, will merely announce what we've already been doing anyway. <laughs> the country's already been on level one, uh, if we're at all, any level. Um, but let's speak to that, that particular point, uh, Mpiaki, this, this, this notion of lockdowns generally, uh, not only here in South Africa, but around the world, it's coming across two levels of, of, of resistance. Number one, the evidence and the data, which is beginning to point out that lockdowns just don't work. They've not made yeah. any impact on cases and deaths and, and the like. And the second one is from the public themselves. In many c- yeah. countries, people are saying, you know, stuff it. We're not going to follow these rules in any event. So that on the first point about data, I think the... Um that's interesting because there was actually data before uh, we went into lockdowns that mm. you shouldn't do lockdowns during a pandemic. So that was ignored. And then we, we had all of these models. I mean, everyone knew. I think only people who don't, who don't, who have no familiarity with models would ever trust in a model. Like models are notoriously un, un, unreliable. Like it's, um, it's one of those things that everyone hopes will work well in the future, but doesn't really work well right now. Like if models work, then just imagine how many, like the things from like the stock market and to, and to all of those things, how many of those things would have been um, or how how those sectors would have changed? So it doesn't it doesn't really work. There, there are too many errors because you are assuming too much about nature, which is always a problem. 
Um, and then on the second point about uh, people getting pissed about lockdown, I think that's, uh, well, that's what happens when you take away people's civil liberties, and the government will find this out as well in the case of EWC. Because they, when you take away people's civil liberties, they have no choice but to rebel because they, you stop them doing things that they do naturally in their everyday lives. And government doesn't really understand this. They think civil liberty is an idea that is brought in from, from let's say, Europe. But it's something that just comes naturally to people. Like it's, it's how you live your life. It's how you interact with your neighbors and everyone else around you. So that they, if they had paid attention to the rule of law, if they had understood that discretion causes arbitrary decision making, if they had understood all of those principles, and if they had understood that if once once law becomes arbitrary, then people lose respect for it, they, we would never have gone into lockdown. But they didn't understand, and then they are going to suffer the consequences because they, they will lose the political support at the end of the day. No, I, I think it is a bit, a bit of a problem. And um, Clive, let me bring you in, and I'm hoping your line is clear, um, because, you know, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but, you know, when I look around, you know, because a lot of the work I do now on the ground takes me into townships and, um, you know, especially in informal settlements, the idea that there is a quote-unquote lockdown in South Africa becomes almost laughable. What's your experience been? Are, are people still following the rules? I'm, I'm staying in the location. People here in the location, they are not supporting the rules or obeying the rules uh, lockdown has ended long time here mm. in the locations. But yeah, I mean, I, I take his point. You know, it, it's it's the illusion again. It's 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 what we're told politician by politicians that they're doing versus what actually is the reality, perhaps, on the ground. Guys, let me move on um, to what I think was the other major story for the week, and one which um, I must say I'm brim, I'm brimming <laughs> with a little bit of uh, excitement and and. Um, and pride, if I, if I can call it that too, but mostly just excitement. You know, th- there seems to be, uh, again, let me, let me bring up two names here. <laughs> two names which, you know, often elicit a, a visceral response from people, and that would be President Donald Trump and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who of course is the leader of Israel. Now, these two gentlemen, whether you like them or not, have had a, have struck up a very close relationship, uh, you know, since the, the Trump presidency has come into fruition. And often what we're told about these two guys is that they are hotheads, you know, they are warmongers. In fact, Trump, we were told, uh, you know, is so irrational that he'll be the cause of World War Three. He's literally Hitler, we're told, by, you know, our, the, his detractors. But it, it would appear on the balance of evidence and, and what's appearing now, with the most recent uh, thing being the Abraham Accord, uh, the uh, I'll call it treaty, peace treaty, and normalizing of relations between Israel, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates, that if anything, Trump is looking like he's a contender for the Nobel Peace Prize here. Um, but yeah, okay, am I being too too uh, optimistic here? And uh, your first take when you saw this uh, Abraham Accord? No, I, I I haven't read the document, but what I, I've read a few articles on it. But uh, it's it's it, it looks good. I mean, I I think it sort of uh, cements what's what's already been uh, pra- practically happening on the ground, which is that uh, the, the states that the Arab states had had mostly normalized relations with Israel. They officially or in they were still in a state of or like they, they still didn't recognize the state of Israel. So this allows them to officially recognize the state now, which is. We, we, which is progress and puts pressure on the Palestinians to uh, make peace. Uh, no, I, I agree. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, both the UAE and Bahrain belong to a broader group called the League um, 
uh, the Arab League, excuse me, which is a a, a constellation, a, a collection, if you will, of Arab countries in that region. And, you know, when they're deliberating on these issues and, of course, others, you know, the Palestinian lobby basically requested that, you know, there, there, there be major denouncements of this particular deal. And that just simply happened, didn't happen. In fact, the Arab League itself was just like, uh, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. If anything, we're encouraging this. And now we're hearing that there are other countries uh, in line, of course, according to the Americans and the Israelis, there are other countries in line who may be looking to normalize relations with uh, Israel themselves. Clive, I'm hoping your line is, 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 is good, my brother, because I want you to weigh in on this. You know, as someone who is a, a Zionist and, you know, you, you, you often do on-the-ground advocacy work for Israel, what was your first take when you saw the Abraham, well, I could call it the Abraham, Accord. I'm going to bring you in, Joe. And I don't know if you are too clued up on this issue, but you know your first take generally when you see you know countries that we're often told um, you know are at perpetual war with each other actually signing these peace deals now, and maybe also comment a lot more about Trump, you know, because this isn't the first time we're seeing him play the role of peacemaker. I mean, he made headlines when he was in, for instance, the North Korea. You know, being the first president, in, in, if at all, uh, a long time, or, or at all, excuse me, to even have, having walked across the DMZ. Uh, your take? Trump 2020, that's my take. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I think uh, this is, uh, you know, I read a quick article uh, in preparation for this. I did hear uh, earlier this week as well. Um, I think it's a moment in history that should be uh, revered and also uh, acknowledged, you know, uh, the fact that these two sides are even talking, sitting in the same room, uh, there's negotiations taking place further than, than ever before. And the signing of some treaty is, I mean, this is a, a conflict that has been going for, for years. And as someone who lived in Egypt for a while, I, I definitely got, uh, some insight, um, of how much, uh, anger there was, uh, between, uh, those two, the Palestinians and the Israelis and, you know, in Egypt, it was always headlines about, you know, someone dying here, people dying there. There's a lot of people that have lost their lives over the past few years uh, because of this conflict, innocent and, and young uh, people. And I, I, I want people to take the, to, to listen to this because that's the reality here. These people have been fighting for a very, very long time. And a lot of people have actually wanted peace. And now we're on the brink of that. And I just hope that this will be honored because, um, and it, regardless if it's Trump, you know, it could have been any other president. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is this is, this is, we are living during a very fascinating time during history, a pandemic, uh, you know, peace talks between Israel and Palestine. This is, this is unprecedented. I, I think it's wonderful news. And I, I think that Trump does deserve the Nobel Peace Prize because it's a conflict that people for a very long time thought it would never be resolved. Yeah, and I think you're echoing a, a, a very strong and rising voice in this regard. I think we have Clive back on the line. Clive, I know you're having issues with your line, but I do, yes, want, yes. I do want you to, to, to comment on this. Um, I'm hoping your line's okay, but you know, uh, you know, as someone who, who, yes. who advocates for the state of Israel, you know, you do on the ground work as a Zionist. Uh, what was your first impression when you you read about the Abraham Accord. Okay, the first time when I read about it, it reminds me on '94 when we here in South Africa, we we, we negotiated for peace. 
then I saw the first step that the Middle East, finally there will be peace. Because this is the beginning of something great. This is the beginning of something wonderful in the Middle East. Because we as South Africans, it is us who are supposed to advocate for peace when we saw this happening in the Middle East. I remember when I was growing as a little boy, when Nelson Mandela agreed to make peace with FWD Clerk, and most of the comrades here, they were fighting, saying they, they want the arms struggle. Mm. But Tata Mandela stood up for peace. So I thought that even we, we as South Africans, not as Zionists, but we as South Africans, we need to be happy and speak with our Palestinian friends that we need to have this peace. This is the beginning of something great in the mm. Middle East. No, and I'm happy to, since I heard about it. Mm, no, absolutely. And I, I really would agree with you to a large extent because I've also found it very fascinating, guys, and I must say this with, with almost a little bit of humor in the back of my mind. You know, when I posted um, pictures of, you know, the, the, the three leaders, you know, the leaders of Bahrain, UAE, and, of course, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, holding, the, you know, the, the signed uh, accord and, you know, Everybody brimming with smiles, almost immediately you just got the usual negative naysays. You know, um, there's there two, there two what I like to call "der" arguments. You know, the first one is "der," but they didn't fight a war. Blah 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 blah. I heard. <laughs> um, so what peace are they signing? Or you know, others would say, you know, the cynics. I'll, I'll only be impressed uh, once Israel and, and the Palestinians themselves sign a, a deal. But I remember thinking, guys, you're losing a sense of perspective here. I mean, at some point, these were countries that had fought, you know, more than what's it, four, five, six wars, um, you know, bitter wars, you know, Arab countries who in 1967, uh, in the, in the Khartoum resolutions had basically said, you know, they, they, they have three no's, which was, you know, no, um, no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiations with it. Now to, to literally have countries in the Arab bloc, um, denounce this and actually want to have relations with Israel, for me is a fantastic step. And, you know, all, all, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, I believe is what the Christians say. Um, guys, I'm gonna have to quickly Take a break. We'll pick up our conversation after the break as I look to shift our conversation onto more local issues. Um, we'll see you guys after the short ad break. Stay tuned for the Big Daddy Liberty Show on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to the Big Daddy Liptus Show. I am in conversation, of course, with Joe Emilio, the host of The Joe Show. I've got to check it out, a YouTube show. Mbiake Ikamini, an analyst and writer at uh, from the Free Market Foundation. You'll also find his writing on many newspapers, mainstream and online. And, of course, I'm joined by Clive Mashishi from the Zionist Movement. We're in conversation. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, yikes. We're in conversation, of course, looking at the news week that was. And, um, guys, I wanted to move on to another issue, which I found interesting. You know, um, here in Cape Town, I'm currently in Cape Town, you know, there's a young lady who started a, an almost Uber-like business. In fact, to compete with the likes of Uber, an e-hailing service, um, and it's, it's touted as quite a successful women's only taxi service. Um, you know, again, the woman only part being the drivers. So she's obviously doing this as a means of empowering young ladies who may be finding themselves out of work. Now, as I said, it's a very successful business. And um, this young lady that I'm talking about is only 18. And she lives in one of the most, you know, uh, unemployed, 
uh, or unemployment rife uh, and poor neighborhoods here in Cape Town of Nyanga. So she's an entrepreneur who seems to be doing well. I'm talking, of course, about Asipe Mkefa. Um, and, uh, yeah, as I said, you know, the, the, she made headlines this week when, uh, you know, she was being harassed by existing taxi drivers, believe it or not, because her business was really doing well. And, you know, you got the usual. And, Piak, I'm, I'm going to look to you on this one for first comment. You know, she got, she got the usual abuse by existing industry of, oh, you know, anytime a new thing comes, you know, she's taking our business, they'll say, or these are our customers, you know, existing <laughs> operators always uh, talking very possessive terms when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, a, a new entrant in the market. Um, Biake, your first just impression when you hear something like this, because it, it's not an isolated incident, is there? You know, the, the new guy always no, faces resistance. No, it's not. And uh, this is one very unfortunate thing about the taxi industry, because like in as much as I, I've sympathized with them in terms of like where they are, the government is trying to regulate them heavily or tax them or all of these other things. They also, on the other hand, like they they act as the government in the industry that they are in, like in the in, in the same way that they don't want to be regulated. They want to regulate other people, especially new entrants into the taxi industry, which is which is unfair and it's in it's a failure of the rule of law. So government has to uh, can't allow that to happen. Like the rule of law has to prevail. Uh, the, the young lady who wants to start a business has rights like everyone. And I remember I, I used to live in um, uh, here in Newcastle in in Nand, one of the suburbs. And then, like, you had to travel by taxi because uh, we were working at SCOM. It's a long story, but we had to travel by taxi. And so, like, yeah, uh, and then you would travel within land and go to Newcastle CBD, and then you would take, like, maybe a car. And then these guys would chase the car, the taxi drivers, and then they would stop you. And then they would, be, they, they would beat up the driver in front of you as the passenger and stop you know, to never, to never get on the, uh, to use these guys again. So they, they, this kind of thing happens all the time, unfortunately, and it's, uh, like government just has to do its job. Like the police, where, where are the police? So that's that's the, the, the like where are the police? What are they doing about it? Mm. That's the problem. Mm. And again, you know, maybe to their credit, uh, as I'm just reading the piece here, the the Santaco spokesperson, that's the South African National Taxi Council uh, in the province, say Mr. Gershwin Gare, uh, condemned the abuse against um, this young lady. You know, his quote being basically being, you know, we're not aware of the threats uh, she's received. This is a direct quote from him. But as Santaco, uh, we are against any form of gender-based violence, and they encourage her to contact them. But it, it just seems like, you know, MGM. Well, well, they always condemn. See, that's the problem. Yeah. They always condemn. Like they, they never say we approve like of these violent dogs uh, chasing these people and beating them up. But they never do something concrete about it. Mm. Like they could easily set up. Like they could easily uh, regulate themselves. Like regulate their, their own violent behavior and stop this and stamp this out. But they, they choose that they choose not to do it. It means there is an element of an implicit. Acceptance of the practice, like that's that's how the taxi industry operates in South Africa. We use violence against competitors. Sadly, so. And uh, let me turn to you, Joe, because again, you know, it, it almost seems like a, a tragic tale, isn't it, when you look at where we are as a country generally, and the desperately needed encouragement of actually more entrepreneurs, more risk takers, mm. people who generate income as opposed to those who consume it. No, absolutely. I think um, there is a misconception in South Africa when someone starts a new venture or a new business. Um, in some industries, it is uh, revered and well-supported and highly 
not highly competitive, but it seems like the taxi industry only has like a, a, a certain, a certain, sorry, a certain portion of it uh, that is uh, widely controlled. And you know, we we heard the same things with Uber. I mean. I have uh, a friend of mine that lives in uh, an area that is next to a taxi rank, and uh, he can't, like every time he Ubers to me, he, an Uber actually cancels sometimes because they don't want to go near the taxi ranks. Um, they get harassed by, by the taxi ranks, you know, um, or the taxi drivers and so on and so forth. Um, and so what is happening to this young lady um, is... Uh, uh, Atrocious, uh, you know, I would, you know, especially now when there's all this talk about gender-based violence and all this talk about empowering women and stuff like that, you know, like, uh, um, uh, um, like what was mentioned earlier is, you know, it's always talk about, oh, we condone that behavior or we don't like that behavior, but there's no action, you know, there's no, there's no like, uh, mention of like, okay, this is what we're going to do X, Y, and Z from now on. This is the law. This is what's going to happen. Yeah. No, it just, it just seems to just be like, we don't condone it. And then they go back into the dark and then it just continues. Um, so it, Joe, it I, needs I, must to inter- I must interject there very quickly because I've, you've raised something which is actually very linked to what I want to raise. And I've only got three minutes left. Um, you know, which is, you know, it, it, and Dumpiaki raises this issue that, you know, the, the, the ease of which we, we allow and we, we give people the freedom uh, to do business is critically important. And this maybe speaks to another issue, the last issue I want you guys to chew on, which is South Africa having been ranked at number at 90, basically 90th, as being the 90th most economically free country in the world. This is according to the 2020 Economic Freedom of the World Report that is released yearly by the Fraser Institute. Uh, the 2020 ranking, of course, is based on 2018 data, so I just had to mention that. Um, but here's the context, guys, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to you guys just now. The 2020 ranking is actually a slight improvement on the previous year, that's 2019, when South Africa was actually ranked 93rd. So we've only improved by three places. Again, not much of a jump here. But you've got to look at this in context, in Piak, which is South Africa's trend basically has been poor. And in 2000, uh, when you consider that in 2000, the year 2000, we were at number 58. Uh, yes, there's that. But also, like, there's, South Africa didn't actually improve this year. Um, so that's, uh, that's the inconvenient thing. So, like, what, what happened was, because, um, uh, like you rightly said, the, the 2020 EFW uses 2018 data. Mm-hmm. So it means that the 2019 EFW uses 2017 data. Mm-hmm. So now if you remember, in South Africa, and how we do in, in income tax, like the, the thresholds for income tax changed in between 2017 and 2018. Mm, mm. So like the, 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 the top rate was increased and then the rate itself was raised from 45% top rates. And then the, 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 the eligible income, the threshold was raised to 1.5 million, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. from 700,000. And so when when government did that, because of the way the variable is calculated in the EFW, uh, it, it it came up as an improvement, even though we had, we had actually increased taxes. Mm. Like uh, if you if we had more time, I could explain in more detail. I actually found this out. I'm not, I, I don't know if other people have seen it, but I actually discovered this through my analysis this week. <clears throat> so we didn't actually improve. Uh, it was just uh, because of how the EFW is constructed, because it works, it, it, the, the variable responsible for it, for, like it's, it's the size, size of government area, the variable responsible for the top marginal tax rates is a categorical variable. 
So what that means is that uh, there are categories like there is a matrix basically the matrix for thresholds in, in US dollars using 1983 dollars and then the the, the, the rows the other axis is just the the, the 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 categories for the percentages. So South Africa is within the 41 to 46 percent top rates mm. because our previous top rate was 41 percent and now it's now 45 percent. So we're still in the in the same category. So in terms of our category, we haven't gotten worse. But in terms of the actual threshold, we've improved. Mm. And so because of that technical reason, it looks like we've improved, but we haven't really improved. And I, I would agree with you. I, I, we, we've just totally ran out of time. <laughs> it's, actually, it's, actually, it's actually gotten worse. Like we, they, they, we're actually charging more tax now, more income tax. So we should, we should actually we should have dropped. So Absolutely. And we, we have run out of time, but maybe just to agree with you, and maybe hopefully, and I know I'm putting pressure on you, maybe we can have you on the show uh, late nights with Big Daddy Liberty on Sunday so we can have this conversation because I think it's very important especially because um, and you, you can unpack it quite nicely uh, in so, insofar as how we've become worse because there's five pillars which is particular ranking users as a metric mm. it's size of government, the legal system and property rights, uh, sound money, freedom of trade and of course regulations around the labor market and around doing business but we have run out of time, maybe I can uh, try and get you onto the show on Sunday um, guys maybe as a final final comment from everybody uh, how do we get you guys on social media how do the people reach you Clive let me begin with you how do we reach you on social media you can reach me at Clive Mashishi on Facebook and, and again you can reach me at Zionist Move on Twitter Excellent. That's at Zionist Move on Twitter. Joe, how do the folks reach you? Thank you once again, Jehre, for having me. And people can reach me very easily on my website, www.joeemilio.co.za. Excellent. You'll find everything there. Excellent. How do we reach you? I see there's some changes in social media wise for you, but I won't say it just in case you don't, you don't want to mention it yourself. <laughs> but how do the oh, oh no, I want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, people can reach me on Facebook now. My name is Sipama Zamini. So my, yeah, so just search for that. Don't, don't look for Piake. You won't find me. <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter? then, uh, uh, on Twitter, it's, it's, uh, touring underscore 1991. And then um, if you want to check me out, my articles, you can go to the Free Market Foundation website. Absolutely fantastic. Guys, thank you very much. That is, of course, the five panel. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll have them again next week. It will be a revolving panel a little bit, but uh, every show will have at least four guests on to make up the five on the podcast.